podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we bring you the latest installment of our Not One Step Back series, in which we read pieces dictated by our Patreon supporters who donate at the top Bonapartist donation tier for three months or more. In this case, it was our listener Dan who recommended that we read the introduction to Marx and the Earth, an Anti-Critique by John Bellamy Foster and Paul Burkett. Thanks, Dan. And now, on with the show. So earlier today, there was a number of theaters across the country, a screening of uh, the movie My Neighbor Totoro. You ever see that? Ever see that I, film? I've always wanted to see that movie. I like Miyazaki, like the two I've seen. It's a, it's a pretty charming film, yeah. Yeah, so I went to go see it, and there's a part in the movie. I've seen it before, but I, I was watching it again. There's a part in the movie where they like they thank this tree for like helping them out and the tree didn't really do anything except be there and they were like climbing on it and shit they're like thanks the the dad is with those two girls and they're like let's thank the tree thanks tree and they say some other stuff and part of me like squirmed in my seat a little bit like there's still a part of me that's like they're thanking a tree like the fuck is wrong with you like that's dumb and then i thought yeah maybe maybe that's the attitude that's raping the earth so uh, today we're talking Just about eco-social woke string of sentences, Jake. That's isn't that kind of the argument of the Frankfurt School, sort of that. That's kind of the know, argument of this piece, really. I mean, well, that there's this way that humans look at nature as just this this resourced exploit for our own advantage, and really, that's you can talk about class, you can talk about gender talking about colonialism but really it's this that's at the heart of everything that's evil well and bad yeah, I mean, in the world and everything that's kind of you know every everything bad about humanity can basically be traced to like the fact that we have this attitude which is often related to the enlightenment well the the, the fuller version of the argument is that the kind of reason that is let out of the box this instrumental reason eats the other kinds of enlightenment reason like that other kinds of reason are available, but instrumental reason eats the rest of them. And well, and I also just found myself asking myself, like, why why do I have like this immediate knee-jerk reaction to people having reverence for nature? You know? What I the think fuck is because of being on the left. I think it's it's like all of the nut jobs that we have have met along the way i think it's more than yeah, that though because i feel like my... I, i'm gonna go great here and say that like being in the left especially when i was an anarchist i knew some fucking really crazy people who had the most malthusian like you know they believed and just they just hated humanity but had the utmost reverence for nature and they really did believe that it would be preferable for the human race to go extinct so much so long as the earth exists as untainted as possible yeah godless hippie nazis who want to jerk off to rocks 
I feel yeah. like it's more than the left though, because I can right. imagine like, the, the the feeling. I can imagine like the South Park guys like feeling the way I felt watching that moment. You know what I mean? I think it's something that's maybe like deeper in the culture. Well, that that maybe with the continuity with it's interesting you picked South Park because there is a kind of eye rolling at climate change and uh, other environmental issues precisely because they've become a matter of political football for the uh, mm-hmm. for the bourgeois left. Yeah, which sort of if you've ever if you've ever seen the global warming episode of South Park, you know they're being chased by nothing. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, South Park is, you know, your classic libertarian show. But it's true that, you know, global warming is, it's been turned into this politically partisan thing between the Democrats and Republicans. You know, Al Gore is Mr. You know, great because he spoke out against global warming. But the, really, the issue here that I think that, you know, this is what I get positively from Foster in this case is that there is basically something wickedly wrong with capitalism and how it creates and how it causes humanity to interact with nature. Well, a lot and of this, piece... this problem is always going to exist so much as we organize based on capitalism. A lot of this piece is basically arguing against different ecological interpretations of Marx and Engels' body of work. And it's basically arguing that Marx and Engels were already woke on the environment and you're just not reading them right. Yeah, that's, that's basically is that a fair characterization. Yeah, because uh, Foster says that, you know, you have the green movement, which has this new critique of, you know, what we were talking about earlier, this critique of human relation to nature that's very much influenced by. For example, in Germany, you had in the nineteen early 1980s the rise of the Green Party, and uh, they kind of had this idea that ecology was really the central political issue, and that it was this attitude of just seeing the Earth as a finite resource that was at the cause of everything. And this obviously lines up with Malthusianism. And well, Foster is saying that there's, you know, Marx, and, and so... There's people who say that, you know, Marxism, in order to accept this, you know, green critique, this critique of environmental destruction, you have to move beyond Marx. But Foster's saying it's already there in Marx, and Marx already understands how basically our relationship to nature is inherently corrupt. I, I mean, guess. to be fair, John uh, Foster separates it into like three sort of waves. So the first wave is just sort of like people who are trying to modify Marx in order to like have accommodate to like the green movement. So essentially you have like people trying to incorporate like Malthusian ideas into Marxism. And then you have like sort of the second wave that tries to find stuff that's already in in Marx, but they don't really do it particularly successfully that's what i got and for like the second wave it's like they're incorporating concepts of ecology well no wait the first wave of like green ecology just critiques marks the second wave tries to incorporate ideas of ecology into marks and the third wave which he consider uh foster considers himself a part of the pioneer of 
is finding the concept of the major concept of ecology of a Marxist ecology within Marx's work himself. So. Yeah. I think broadly speaking, there is a wave of concerns after, um, you know, the sort of mid 20th century that takes hold that, you know, for a lot of the traditional left-wing interpretations of politics, you know, all these new issues were, over, were overcoming class. And, you know, a lot of Marxists get salty about this and bitter. But what I think is a better way of looking at it is that the, the narrow focus of wage labor, um, you know, ends up being broadened in the political sphere in a way that Marx would probably approve of. And that so much, so many, so many of the political topics of like the last 50 years with regards to race and gender and the environment uh, and you know, globalization or what have you are all things that are deep lodged deep in the heart of historical materialism. Oh yeah. I mean, Marx certainly did not only talk about waged labor and the, the, the modern day, I think it's really what a lot of people see as class reductionist, like Marxism is really just kind of syndicalism actually. Well, the, the, the other thing to mix quite a bit. Well, the, but, the other thing is that the way that people tend to try to reincorporate these issues into Marxism not only doesn't really engage with the issue, but often doesn't really engage with the theoretical core of Marxism. And I think that's uh, the critique of the second wave of eco-socialists here is that they're just sort of stapling some Malthusian stuff onto historical materialism where it doesn't belong. Well, See, in, in, in defense of the people going back and not reading it too deeply into the ecological stuff of Marx at some level on a very basic level, it's understandable because the authors here mm -hmm. even have to dip into the letters sent between Marx and Engels. Like that's the deep, deep cuts, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to really go into the deep cuts to, to get right, this yeah. stuff. The, like the, the yes. Marx, Marx is See? very, very focused on class struggle and the sort of immediate, like relations of capitalist production the stuff about the metabolism the, the deeper stuff isn't often in, at the forefront like you'll see a little bit in the manifesto where they talk about even well, Marx, the division between yeah. town and country yeah like, we gotta uh, talk about there, country. there are there are deeper cuts where marx talks about agrarian issues and national issues and stuff like that and how draper's been good at, and you're right it's all in the deeper cuts what i was going to say is the way of looking at it should not be that we have to kind of mix marxism with these new developments in thought but that historical materialism itself is a research program that's always critiquing and developing itself through the ab the absorptions of new developments in science in that it's a living science, essentially. And how Marx reacted to the sciences of his time, and also the social sciences of his time and the political sciences of his time, is that he didn't just dismiss them as bourgeois, but he critiqued them, but also developed his own ideas based on these, you know, what you could call an imminent critique of these different concepts. So it's well, it's also just not new ideas. It's also literally new phenomena like capital. The productive forces of capitalism develop and are able to have impacts on the environment that couldn't have possibly existed like in Marx's time. And the, you know, 
not only not only in terms of quantity but in terms of quality so there are things for instance like global warming which comes up in this text where uh, the, this author argues that there's this other author who lo- who basically says explicitly that of course Marx couldn't have predicted global warming but then kind of goes after him for low-key not predicting global warming right so there's the new phenomena that are emerged by capitalism developing to like higher levels of productiveness and developing new ways that it can uh, unintentionally impact nature um, as well as yeah like new ideas which kind of drives new thinking about ecological stuff. But I think what uh, Foster is arguing is that we can examine these new phenomena from within the framework of uh, historical materialism and still come out um, having like a good analysis. Yeah. Uh, the concept that he's like working with is what he refers to as a metabolic riff. Basically like man's relationship to nature is that, is like holistic holistic it's man is simply a part of like one larger system of nature but capitalism frames it in a way in which man is separated from nature and continually separates man from nature more and more to the point where it like creates a harmful side effects for like both and just as it destroys the metabolism of man and just, well it, it's also it's also that you know there's also the problem of externalities and a lot of the there are external costs to mm. capital accumulation and capital transactions that don't get measured within you know the value form right yeah. that's that's the whole idea behind the carbon tax if we yeah. if we if we monetize this then the market can make the rational adjustments and yeah, it, it makes it, sense then that if Marx is analyzing political economy, that the externalities to, to political economy will not be totally incorporated in, into his analysis, uh, at least when he's at least within the context of the critique of political economy. Yeah, in Capital, Marx is trying to trace out the pure logic of capital, and obviously, the pure logic of capital does not take into account the environmental and social costs of investments because it's pure capital logic but the point is is that marxism and historical historical materialism as a whole is a totalistic or at least a you know it's a theory of the totality it is an integral theory of all aspects of human existence and as whereas capital itself is something very much more specific which is a specific explanation of capital's like laws of motion. Yeah, I want to tie this to our previous uh, listener-funded episode, not one step back, comrades. Uh, that was um, on Heinrich Grossman's uh, theory of capital's breakdown, and it was frequently remarked by not you know, it is frequently remarked by Marxists uh, across the humanities that Marx doesn't actually have an economic model of a breakdown theory. Um, and it's more so that when you take his general work into account, and especially the stuff that Foster and Burkett are putting forward, um, the stuff about externalities robbing the earth, um, it's impossible to imagine that they thought that capitalism could go on forever because the whole point of communism as a reestablishing the metabolic rift Reestablishing equilibrium with nature 
uh, implies that, you know, capitalism is tremendously out of fucking whack with nature <laughs> and will deplete it and will destroy it. Well, and it gets into that later in the piece as well, talking where it he basically argues that the logic of another author, I forget which one, he basically argues that Marx ignored the Malthusian dimension of why wood was getting depleted in the English countryside. And the author are the other author argues that it's a re, it was a result of pop overpopulation. But Foster goes and points out, well, actually it was had to do with the development of iron. And Ingalls actually pointed out that if there hadn't been a switch over to coal, like all of Germany's forests would have been rapidly depleted <laughs> because the amount of wood that it takes to melt iron is far greater in volume than what it takes for coal so they were actually paying attention to resource depletion and i think marx later later on became very interested like in in like soil decomposition and stuff like that mm -hmm. yeah um, and that was maybe like one of his um i don't know was that a blind alley or did he actually do something with that i, I never i don't know i just know that the point is that like, marx was interested in everything marx yeah. was always he was up to date he was you know fucking renaissance man you know up to date on the most you know motherfucking intelligent stuff going on but still critiquing it and learning from it and i see no reason why we can't do that with ecology but at the same time john bellamy foster seems to have a very specific politics that kind of follows from this reading of marx i think when a lot of times a theoretical reading of Marx often is accompanied by a political vision of, of what we need to do. And it's hard. And there's two things that I've been able to kind of glance from the piece that kind of point to where his agenda might be. Just one is in page 30, where he kind of has a defense of small proprietors. And he's trying to kind of say that, you know, the wisdom of small proprietors may be more correct than scientific planning. In some cases, scientific planning may be more correct. You know, he obviously says that. But in other cases, you know, this kind of indigenous wisdoms passed down for generations on how to, you know, what he calls a, you know, a, a free association of small proprietors. So might actually be the, the true way to go. And I, I think he take, he makes the requisite, like, provisios there. You know, he... Yeah, but at the same time, then he says that... Marxism doesn't, it doesn't really have the uh, capacity, he, he's trying to counter the idea that Marxism has the incapacity to respond to the environmental movement in one part. That's one uh, critique that someone makes of Marxism is that because it has this productive forces, technological, you know, aspect, it's not able to respond to the environmental movement. And Foster says, no, actually, Marx believes in all this stuff about the metabolic rift, and he's actually green already. And Marxism is totally compatible with the environmental movement. But what exactly is the environmental movement? And I think that there actually are a lot of questionable things about what the environmental movement was. And I, I at the same time, you know, a lot of people who critique it, are coming from the right so this is obviously ground you want to tread carefully on yeah i, I want to first of all push back on your interpretation of what uh the authors are saying there because i think marx is just recognizing that it's possible that the scientific planning of the day wouldn't have 
discovered the techniques of some of the indigenous farmers, which, you know, was known to happen at least with industrial, like, you know, agriculture and, or, or even just like settlers in general, you know, famously when, uh, you know, the European settlers came to the Americas, indigenous people, you know, showed them how to plant so they wouldn't die. And well, yeah, but that, uh, that's not that's that's, that's like about soil depletion in factory farming today. Yeah, but the the settlers who came into the United States were also subsistence farmers who were trying to become small proprietors, basically. Like you know, what you had was in the United States with the colonizers was basically a bunch of people who wanted to steal Indian land and then become small proprietors on their own. So it does actually make sense then that they would learn from the indigenous populations how to grow for themselves. But at the same time, this, you know, we live in an era of industrialized agriculture. And well, so um, it just seems suspect to me whenever someone kind of defends small proprietors in, in this political time era, I guess. Well, it, I mean, I'm looking at the relevant passage in question because when I first read it, I didn't get that out of it either. Um, my reading was closer to Lexi's. Uh, is the, is the sentence you're fixating on here, it goes, Marx's treatment of agriculture demonstrates a strong respect for science, together with an insistence on the relative sustainability of small farmers acting alone or organized as associated producers. Is that the bit? Yes. Okay. So is do you, do you think that the author is making a narrow statement about, like, the technical sustainability of agriculture, or do you think he means sustainability in the sense of like a broader social system. See, this is this is, you know, where I come into issue with the question of sustainability as well because it's just it's a lot of pre-modern forms of resource production are not sustainable. In fact, there's been research, you know, I, yeah, that's, that says that if we all return to small producers, it actually would be less sustainable than the current I think this is well accounted for in the text. I think this is well accounted for. On page 30, like a little bit above, um, small farmers generally know a lot about what works in their local environment, and some have developed highly productive and ecologically sound farming systems. However, such indigenous knowledge is nowhere near the last word in the implementation of ecologically sound uh, agricultural practices. Some practices by peasants or small farmers are not particularly good such as using hillsides without proper terracing or other means to slow water flowing yeah. slowly. I mean, erosion. I, my, my so he's got, he's got, room. he's got room for this and he's, he's actually pretty good about um, preempting a lot of the arguments that one would get into because his view sounds like it's going to deep ecology, but he really does yeah. mark no, himself no, well, listen, off in a helpful way. If this is, all he said, I would be fine with it. It's what his followers believe. And there's another uh, thing about Morris Hillquit, which I also question. And he kind of saw socialism as based on kind of small artisanal production and small production. And I have noticed that a lot of people who really hawk Foster do kind of see communism as kind of a return to artisanal production and localized, you know, grow your own organic food you know farm the table agriculture for everyone type vision he's he's he marks himself off from that kind of point of view yes specifically 
but Foster does have a blog where he argues specifically against geoengineering. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and also, there, there, you know, there is something. To well, there there are good arguments to be made against geoengineering. I mean. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying by nature that. I don't. I, I just feel like everyone around me has gotten dumber since they started spraying chemtrails in the sky. And, uh, true. <laughs> well, Foster has a following of kind of ludites. I was going to say you can sort of connect like a critique of like these sort of like loose ends of like weird degrowth, fetishism, hostility to nuclear energy and like geoengineering to like an overarching critique that. He's essentially what he's doing is reading Heidegger's critique of modernity into Marx. Um, Heidegger. That's what Lucio like, Coletti accuses Marcuse of, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, like, I, I really like Coletti uh, in, in some ways, but is this really not there? in Marx, in the early Marx, like, and I mean, and, and if you agree that it's in the early Marx, like just the kind of, you know, it isn't, you, you don't it think isn't. this is in the early, in the early Marx. No, it's uh, more of a Promethean drive in the early Marx. There's still a Promethean element. And on the it's, Jewish question, he's a Promethean. Like he's so essentially in specifically like, yeah, I think Rose is talking more about the, the economic philosophic manuscripts. Well, I'm, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, let's, you finish your point. Yeah, so essentially, in the later works of Heidegger, he talks mainly about, like, the environment and man's relationship to the environment as something that is separating, being separating from, like, nature. It's, like, the sort of, like, um, logic sort of, like, logic of capitalism is separating man from nature and, like, much uh, is sort of fetishism for Nazism came out of like the idea that the Ger Germanic people were, were going to be able to usher in a second wave of great second wave of philosophy because they were more rooted. They were a rooted people, whereas <laughs> like the Greeks were too like cosmopolitan. They were not rooted in the land. And they were just, you know, while it was somewhat great, they were limited by their cosmopolitan nature. So the German people who were rooted in the land and were volkish enough would be able to usher in this <laughs> um, this new era of philosophy. But obviously this didn't come to work out. And he still had this fetishism for rootedness and this connection to nature that is necessary for like full being or whatever. I, I can't like frame it in the Heideggerian terminology. I I'm, really, I'm I, I really, Heidegger, I'm sorry. Yeah. Heideggerian terminology is really hard to work with, honestly, but yeah, it's like basically this sort of like modernity separates man from nature and this leads to kind of alienation and like environmental degradation that is ultimately harmful for like not not just nature on like a physical level but man spiritually i see this critique that basically modernity and reason and this idea of humanity seeing things in economic terms is what leads to this degradation and alienation from nature because when we see things in spiritual terms 
we have a desire for a harmony with nature whereas when humanity starts seeing things in economic terms it becomes instrumentalized in its reasoning and therefore sees nature as a resource rather than something to be in harmony with does that make you know it, i'm not saying i agree with this but is that no. a well and with the metabolic riff, it's essentially concerned with man separating from nature, like this slow process that has gone on since capitalism. That well, like, well, isn't isn't that on some level a component of the problem? Because part of the reason why there was smokestack socialism, and part of the reason why there is this rift between the workers' movement and the, the sort of what we already described as bourgeois ecological movement, is that workers through the society produced by capitalism do not immediately feel the effects of the externalities of capitalist production upon nature like in other words like it uh, immediate economistic struggle is not concerned with those externalities because they do not they do not always directly impact workers when they yes, obviously Jake, when, there's actually one story that relates to that it's not when, my story but Basically, like there was a strike in France where part of the uh, tactics that the workers used was to dump all of it was at a chemical plant and they basically dumped the entire reserve into the river as a way to like sabotage the boss. And so the workers were to like basically destroying the environment as a tactic in the class struggle. So that mm -hmm. totally like points out that contradiction and that's kind of fucking real dumb. I'm not gonna lie. Actually, left comms were like celebrating, and they're like, "Oh, the bourgeois environmentalists will all cry," but this was the workers' action, you know, or whatever. <laughs> well, and there and there were when people were protesting the Keystone XL pipeline, major American trade unions wrote letters to the president telling them him to approve it. Yeah, if you build that pipeline over indigenous land, fuck their water supply. We need gerbs. So there is there is an antagonism there, and I think. That well, yeah, it does, I mean, it does, it does relate to the fact that the impacts on nature aren't directly felt by a lot of workers. There are specific sections of the proletariat that do experience more direct externalities because of production. I remember reading a story about some town downwind of the Sriracha factory that that where the air just had a lot of chili in the air, like when there was a lot of like Sriracha being sold. There's so much chili in the air that it, like it would sting your eyes to go outside, and so. There are certain aspects of this that I think, you know, would be politically actionable in a way. Yeah, no. Directly. Climate change climate change is going to directly hit oh, yeah. the semi-periphery and the periphery proletariats like really, really hard. But yeah. not yet. Yeah, they're going to be looking, No, no, it's already going happening. But what, what I'm saying is it hasn't reached the point where it has hit them so hard that they're forced for the sake of immediate survival to struggle against it. Yeah, you're going to see mass migration in the near future. Oh, yeah. No, it's going to happen. But what I'm saying is, it, in other words, the biosphere has not degraded enough to the point where it, it is for the majority of workers an immediate fight for survival now. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of want to defend the idea of the metabolic rift on this grounds, that there is a relationship of the human race with... <laughs> It's the human species, basically. There's a human species, and this human species needs to reproduce. And by reproducing, it has a set of relationships of nature 
through which it forms productive forces and reproduces itself as a species. However, there are also within the human species all these divisions of nation, class, gender, etc. that basically, you know, affect how this entire process of a metabolism of nature happens. But at core, there's two main contradictions, which is, you know, humanity and nature and then humanity in itself as it's divided into classes. And so the point is, is that if you want to have true historical materialism that's focused on humanity as a whole, you have to look at both sides of it. And the metabolic rift is this kind of idea that humanity needs to not just, you know, reproduce it as a classless species, but also has to reproduce in harmony. Right. With, and, and harmony, I don't like that word so much, but it has to reproduce in a way with nature that allows this, the reproduction of humanity. Well, you don't like all the words for this. Sustainability, harmony, you know. Yeah, just, I mean, no, it, no, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's because how about this? It's the highest level of the productive forces where the qualitative change. Well, I call it, yeah, I call yeah, that could be hard. Yeah, you I like it? Call, you like that? Well, That's some historical materialism. Well, I would say, I would say the thing is, in order to have this quote-unquote harmony, what really is required is a planned economy, that humans have to take the economic forces of industrialization and put them under yeah, control. Well, yeah, yeah. So it actually is a Promethean. The fight against climate change is actually somewhat Promethean in the sense that mm. it's about unleashing new forces in order to combat the, you know, the, the new problems that have been created by nature that are basically kind of a, a result of forces that are outside the average person. Yeah, riff and like any other sort of like suit, sort of like faux Heideggerian analysis faux Heideggerian concept that involves like the alienation of man from nature is that the, the assumption is that always to fix this is to like just slowly move away from these technologies that are alienating man from nature and this will bring us back this will bring us back to nature this will like help the environment you know we have to do like degrowth we have to like pursue only the technologies that are 100 percent green like solar and yeah air. yeah i i yeah, agree yeah. but that's that and the I, thing is is what i was I trying to, to get at earlier well uh, it, it's it's an irrationalist impulse as opposed to let's manage this rationally technologically i think for communism in its sort of immediate tasks so people don't realize how connecting a solar grid not just, you know, collecting the, the solar, but actually distributing it and setting up the infrastructure to do that. You know, these renewable technologies have, have some use now, but to be really, to really put them, to put nature under social control in a positive, healthy way, I think we need to develop these technologies further. And I think we will need... Um, an absolutely massive effort uh, that responds to people's social self-interests. Uh, we need to make people, we're going to have to motivate people to do some pretty big changes on, on, uh, or at least, you know, we're going to have to convince people that these monumental projects are worth doing. I think, yeah. I, I, I think there's just like two monumental projects that you need. One, you build nuclear reactors all over the goddamn place, <laughs> and then you build a space elevator so you can send out the nuclear waste material and launch it into the sun.
That way it's not polluting the earth. Isn't there an Arthur C. Clarke novel where they accidentally yeah, that's, blow up that's the that's an sun. Arthur C. Clarke thing, but no, seriously. No, uh, I, 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 I need. To, I gotta push back on this pe- shit. I gotta push back on this shit. Honestly, people's though. fusion. Like the, the, the solution is people's fusion. Well, yeah. Co- if we can crack cold fusion, we gotta get that guy from the Alpha to Omega that was on top. Yeah, we gotta, we gotta get in contact with that guy and get him in the party and get him to yeah. create yeah. a plan to you know create cold fusion so we can all have cold like fusion. Okay, but what were you gonna say? Like, what do you want to push back on? Uh, like, I think that it it is very sad for everyone that Marx has these romantic German feelings that they come directly from his Hegelian lineage, but that I think the way that Marx deals with these things corrects a lot of the problems that you're implying that some of these thoughts necessarily lead to, because the whole point of the dialectical move for Marx is that he is concerned about alienation as a natural phenomenon but he thinks we can kind of get to a higher form of metabolism with nature by pushing through the development of alienation so yes people's fusion like like that could be part of that could be part of an abolition of town and country that like brings us in harmony with nature it could yeah <laughs> the, the fusion, they're like it's ten years away, and it always nah, will. Be. I mean, fuck fusion, you know. But you know what I mean, yeah. like real. Yeah, technology. let's let's not make this into a debate about fusion because you know cold you know, fusion science, is real. Goodbye, everyone. S- scientists will figure this out, and you know we're not really scientists. Yeah, cold fusion is fake, actually. Um, yeah, yeah we all know that. Just just yeah. for the record, no, 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 this, this no, cold no, fusion no, thing is gonna pay out any minute, man. Any minute. Okay, I got I got it. It's gonna pay out any minute. To quote Arthur C. Clarke, what was considered magic once is now science. Yeah, that's a direct quote, I think. Yeah, future is, I mean, I'm all about a futuristic high-tech communism. I actually don't see this as completely, I don't see this as in contradiction with having an ecologically sustainable future. And when I say geoengineering, that sounds ridiculous. But what I really mean is that there needs to be a revolution in the productive forces so where we still have the level of productivity that allows humanity to flourish, yeah, at the same time, we have productive forces that are not simply more efficient, but are also less alienating, both in the sense of the labor process and the relation to nature. And so I think that's something that should be taken into account. And it's something that Rudolf Barrow, a critique of the Soviet um, model in East Germany, really brings up is how there is this kind of sense of just seeing nature as a resource that dominates Soviet planners and this sense of seeing nature as a resource kind of extends to seeing labor as a resource and so that's kind of and I think that's something you see in capitalism is that you basically you see nature as something to be plundered and so and it does not long until you just see labor itself in human lives as something to be plundered because that's just you know it's part of production but there's a potential another way of looking at it. And I think I was getting at it on the Stalin episode in contradiction to Stalin's like boner for the instruments of production. But the ultimate productive force is labor power. And labor power can be, even while alienated, and this is the standard Hegelian move, while alienated is taken to such incredible kinds of powers that could have never been developed without that alienation. But then 
there's a higher form of wholeness and a higher form of like stability that you can get to. And you somehow get to take those wonderfully produced powers there as well. That's the, that's the hopeful dialectical move. The obscure European thinker that this conversation makes me think of is Alfred Schmidt, recalling the Frankfurt School stuff you're talking about. He draws us yeah. out specifically. Yeah, and I've read that it, book too. Oh, are you talking about I, um, Alfred Schmidt's book on Marx and nature? Yeah, so this is, he really plays out the metabolic rift. And I think this is where the book that yeah. we're reading today gets a lot he of it. It was referenced. Wasn't yeah. he referenced no, it, by? Uh, like, yeah, no, yeah they're, they're, they're taking the same thesis you know like this is a continuation of his thesis in a way in, in, a, in a good way and uh like the way schmidt put it is that it would be domination of man's domination of nature you know what i mean like like man's domination of man's that's, domination yeah, of that's, nature. That's, that's, that's <laughs> more under control of society in a sense but an ecological society well we also have to one way you're putting controls. it is that we have to humanize nature essentially we need second-order controls on our use of nature. <laughs> like, well, we need control I mean, over is, our control. Well, there's a there's an approach to nature that really just sees nature as this kind of brutal, ugly, impersonal, regressive, and barbaric thing that needs to be overcome. And that the more we become alienated from nature, the more we become truly human, and the more we can actually develop our capacities as humans and move beyond these regressive natural tendencies I and then i think bullshit. i think Don't what rosa up. is saying is that is is basically this is kind of an opposite of that when it's saying that humanity has become progressively more alienated from this state of nature and that the metabolic rift represents his alienation from a state of nature that needs to be returned to and that this is found in marx and their and it's a, it's a narrative that I've always had trouble grasping with because I don't know how anthropologically based and scientific it is. So I think that the problem with the Heideggerian or whatever perspective on alienation from nature is that it, it it's an irrationalist solution. It's basically a Luddite solution. We need to get away from this technology and back to like the natural cycle of whatever. Whereas, I mean, you can actually think about like healing this, uh, fixing this metabolic rift with, rift with nature by, you know, just planning and just using like the instruments of yeah. science to logically understand like what impacts are being had by nature and through planning the economy, make the appropriate adjustments in order to make sure that, you know, you're not basically tanking the ecosystem and the basis of human life. Yeah. And on the. Um, the worry about metaphysics and the weird notions of intrinsic value, this reading is very good about this. It absolutely points to how a certain kind of vitalism is something that can become quite reactionary quite quickly and can lead to the kind of Malthusian anti-humanism collapse fetish um, that we're all afraid of in ecological thought. <laughs> or we don't, I, you know, I'm not interested in that. I'm. Yeah, I, find it, I find it kind of nauseating, and I th I think it's like a reactionary. It, it's a reactionary it, position. Like but it creeps. Into, but the thing is, the reason that there's often this kind of knee-jerk reaction against it, ecological thought, is because people feel like it's trying to creep these Malthusian and anti-humanist and anti-technology and anti-progress ideas into the left, and in a sense. Mm -hmm. It, it, 
I, right. I, like, I think there are other things that are doing that. I don't think it's fair to blame ecology. No, I think no that, like, that's the uh, point. A moral panic out of this is the stuff like Spiked Magazine, which were basically Trotskyists who became like weird libertarians after yeah. the fall of the Soviet Union. And they let their fear of ecology and its kind of backwards-looking tendencies mm -hmm. get to the point where they basically became straight-up apologists for big technology and capital. Well, not only apologists, they seem to deny the seriousness of global warming. Yeah, yeah, they not, deny not, global yeah, 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 they definitely do. They think that basically the, the solution to global warming is just more investment in technology, which okay. is the Koch brothers' line. The thing is, this is the other side of it, is that you have people who are anti-GMO, anti-nuclear, anti... Industrial agriculture, essentially anti-modernity in the left, who you know obviously, and and they say that anyone who critiques these positions on scientific grounds is basically a shill for the big capitalist. But I'm willing to see that basically GMOs and things like that can actually be used in in a good way, and that it doesn't have to be the predatory type practices that we see in capitalist agriculture. And the problem is not for technology. I just wanted to say something about the Malthusian element. And I don't think I don't think it's just like you have these Malthusians who are trying to like creep this stuff into the left. I mean, I think Malthusianism is almost like a spontaneous response to just kind of stepping back and like observing, you know, like the mass of mass society. You know, like I think it's mm -hmm. a very I think it's a very basic and very human reaction to just stand back and go, God, look at all these fucking people. Look at all these fucking. Yeah. How do we? How yeah, do we? Totally. How do we sustain totally. this? This is we can't crazy. do this. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, it's it's a very like basic uh, spontaneous reaction to the immediate, and but that's and the so problem it, is a lot of reaction that describes a lot of reactionary thought. Right. I've made this argument before. Like Malthus denies Say's law. You know that su uh, supply creates its own demand. In short. Um, Malthus denied that bourgeois economic law before Marx, and when Marx did criticize it, they were two of the only major figures to have criticized it. So there is a rhyme in their thought, and if you're not let's, careful, <laughs> let's look, let's look at why. Let's look at how Marx debunks Malthus. And this is my understanding: is that Malthus is saying that human population growth and need will outstrip the supply of resources. Whereas Marx is saying that humanity is defined by the fact that it controls the conditions of its own reproduction, and therefore it can develop more efficient forces of production to meet its needs. So if, for example, there's a certain good that you, people are relevant on and it's undersupplied through the, through the application of science and technique and the development of productive forces, it can one produce that good more efficiently and meet the need of the population, or it can replace it entirely with a more "quote unquote" sustainable good, essentially. And so, well, Marx just basically why, argues that production drives population and not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he's saying that basically this whole idea that consumption is limited by, and and that that basically. We just don't have enough food to feed everyone. We just don't have – there's just too many people. He's basically saying that that's just a cover for a reactionary idea. 
or a reactionary impulse, even if that impulse kind of comes from the spontaneous hatred of humanity. Well, it's not it just does, hatred. It, it's a theorization it's a, of it. It's not just hatred. It's a kind of inborn sense that things are scarce. And that's a natural condition for humans to be in, to assume scarcity. And it's difficult yeah. for us to accept that starvation exists and scarcity is essentially artificial well, at the same time. That's a difficult thing to accept. Well, look, look, let's look at the basic definition of economics is that it's the science of rationing scarce resources, uh -huh. basically. Yeah, but like for grain, you know, if everyone needs grain or, you know, quinoa, whatever, you know, if, if you're allergic to uh, some other kind of grain, we got some more grain. Very inclusive of you, Lexa. Thank you. Yeah, yes, I, I do my best. I mean, every, <laughs> everybody can have some grain or everyone can have, you know, what like some food right now. Like that's how it could be. And it is so difficult for us. I feel like, you know, not to go eat to Evo psych, but this this is just a new thing. And uh, even like, uh, you know, 100 years down the road, I don't know how long this condition has been, at least 50 years, we've had enough food to feed everybody. Um, you know, it, it's still hard for people to grasp, especially when you encounter scarcity in your everyday life um, with food or something or, or with, with, with anything. It's yeah. just hard. It's hard for people to grasp or it just doesn't matter that there's scarce there's not scarcity theoretically somewhere else. They're like Yeah, I think that we like, look like that. 75 percent of food production goes to waste or something. It's just like a ridiculous yeah. amount of food and production goes to waste. I saw I watched this lecture by John Bellamy uh uh by Foster. And he he basically laid out like the first sort of like first part of like the critique which is essentially the metabolical like rift that sort of thing and then he goes on to describe how capitalism is like inherently wasteful like 60 percent of production like goes to these things that are kind of entirely wasteful and like you could be reorienting production towards more efficient things like you don't need like five different brands of soap a bunch of advertising things like that that like contribute to like the environment like environmental issues and just like just basically waste everyone's time as well as contributing to environmental issues but like that's probably the more powerful part of like a critique environmental critique of capitalism that it's simply like incredibly wasteful in terms of like you know it creates all this needless shit that honestly could be gotten rid of you don't need five different brands of soap you don't need five different brands of toilet paper you don't need like things to break down quicker than you don't need things to break down at a certain point if you're not selling them const trying to sell them stuff like that you know but rosa according to milton friedman freedom is choice consumer choice that's true freedom in the soviet union if you don't like the soap that they give you you have no choice you have to take it either way capitalism lets you choose man how can you not love it I'm, yeah I'm, 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 yeah i think yeah. communism I mean, will have a lot of different types of soap you know there's just ones that smell really good there's different uses uh, I'm 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 just not sure I'm on board with this. I don't. Well, then again, hold on. 
You didn't say kinds of soap. You said brands of soap. Brands of soap. Yes. And communism destroyed. I was brands. just making fun yeah. of like neoliberal, like oh gotcha yeah. questions. Oh no, yeah. I I caught that. Yeah, I was talking yeah. about what Rosa was saying. I mean, under communism, there will be no axe soap. There won't be none. I mean, I think we'll be gone. I, I mean, if we're gonna get to like speculate about communism time, I actually think there might actually be firms that will choose to produce like toilet paper slightly differently than other firms, and like if those if those attain popularity Definitely. because they're consumed, it might become the standard like more broadly. Like you're a fascist. That's Heideggerian. No, no, no. That's Jake. Jake is just being a good Leninist. Okay, don't don't be haters. Yeah. No, this this is the the conditions of uh, production or whatever. This like, is just the conditions of socialist development. No, we no, no seriously, seriously, and for, forces, relations, and conditions of production. The conditions of production in Marxy talk was always the, the so the sort of the, the other factors, the externalities, the stuff that isn't properly accounted for in forces and relations. Like the, I mean. So there, anyway, there would be a proliferation of choice just because, like, there would be people consuming different kinds of goods, and there'd be measurements of what people consume, and that would influence what gets produced. So there would actually be, like, within communism, like a diversity of goods. Like, it wouldn't just be war communism, where you go yeah, like yeah. brown paper bag and get your one thing of soap, your block of lard, your loaf of bread, and your bottle of vodka. You know, what I'm saying is there no, won't Jake, be five right. million brands, though. Jake, That's the you're right for, but for only party members. Everyone else. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, no, wait, everyone, everyone gets axe soap, specifically the kind of axe soap that's like an extremely strong smell. Uh-huh. Only that kind. Oh, but I'm a gluten free vegetarian and I'm, you know, like allergic oh. to strong smells and. And talk about the uh, the environmental movement and kind of what, you know, Foster sees Marx, how Marx, because Foster just talks about the, the failure of Marxism to intervene in the environmental movement. But I think reading about the history of the environmental movement, the little bit that I have, it seems to very much be a very white and petty bourgeois movement. The environmental movement itself as like a political sphere activist group is is pretty worthless, I would say. And I think that they they haven't really... That's not something that responds to anyone's social interests. Like, it's, it's, it's not actually advancing... Why would the proletariat care about the current environmental uh, movement? You know, as... Someone that saw a lot of... Dev- I, no, I've, been, I've been around a lot of, like, environmental tech development... And people are actually making some interesting little breakthroughs. They're just, you know, like, and there's a lot of, and there's a lot, lot of funding, relatively speaking, for, you know, some of this, like, than other parts of the economy within the internal economy. Of course, not like there isn't, you know, other places, whatever. The point being that, like, there is actually some progress being made under capitalist conditions, you know, with nonprofits or whatever. But as, you know, are as as Ted K said. You know, there are just parts of these politics that are going to be roped into this domesticated, you know, movement that's going to hold up the system. You know, and the system's neatest trick is to create, you know, environmental themed outrage activism that's yeah. not going to fix the fact that the planet is going to be fucked and we're going Whoa. to, you know, people are just going to drown because there's going to be a seven degree heat increase. You mean, I think that, you mean I think that, that Greenpeace a of, dropping a banner on some oil rig 
Uh, that didn't that didn't stop capitalism. Yeah. Well, yeah. Fuck, fuck Greenpeace. Fuck. It didn't. Annoying. I thought. But what I was going to say is, I'm, I want to push back against the idea that it's not in the uh, social interests of proletarians. Same. But fight for environmental causes because it's going to be. I think I think it's in the social. I think it's in the social interests of humanity, and I think only the proletariat as a class is actually going to be compelled to struggle for a future that can save humanity from environmental devastation. Right, of course. The think, it is a universal class, yes. But I think that um, – I, I never said that they shouldn't engage with the environment. I think they should – I think that we need a, a engagement with environmental issues that approaches things fundamentally different than the – NGOs and the politico environment yeah. activists. I appreciate um, that sentiment, I'm... but this is this alongside like, you know, issues about war are the kind of big, huge, global, centralized things that inevitably have to be addressed in a in a big theater in society. And the problems with the emergent left are gonna come up and we need to try to figure some way to outmaneuver them <laughs> or something for the love of God, because we're not going to be able to escape having to deal with this in the, the big deal places because we can't do this on our own. Like we, we can't, I mean, save the planet on our own. In all honesty, if, if you were to like be forced to be picked between like invite, this sort of degrowth environmental eco-socialism or some or like even worse like deep ecology stuff and versus like sort of like capitalism's lame attempt like which one do you think is gonna actually be more likely to save the world in terms from save us from global warming because in all honesty, I think like the capitalists probably have a better shot because they're less totally. they're less afraid of using they're less afraid of geoengineering and using nuclear energy. And they're like, yeah, they're not gonna do like the systematic fixing that I mean, would honestly be better. Of, they are kind of afraid of nuclear energy because I mean, there's, there's a high upfront investment cost and a low long term return relative to the fossil fuels. So it's going to be like massive amounts of people dying, and it's also going to be about capitalists coming up with whizbang techno inventions that allow a few, you know, wealthy people to survive. I think yeah, that yeah, like it's, it's it's really socialism or barbarism in, in this. Yeah, situation. but at the same time, like you have like nations like China that would be willing to invest in that willing to be investing in nuclear power because much of their economy is still driven by the state and yeah it's just like yeah at the same time the eco-socialist people aren't going to save humanity with degrowth and all that they aren't they simply aren't like it's not going to be enough you can't run it you can't growth is not an option this vision of everyone becoming a small producer and producing their own organic food and basically not having air conditioning is one thing I've seen suggest like there was an article in Jacobin that said air conditioning was good because poor people shouldn't have to like be super fucking hot due to global warming. And so we shouldn't be against air conditioning and that had like people really fucking mad because air conditioning is, you know, 
killing the earth or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. All you can't run an entire society based off of solar and wind. Like we don't have it's the technology is not there to the point where we can do that. So what you're going to end up is getting not not the nice comfy eco socialism that they portray, but a kind of like eco war communism where you have like a rationing of resources that's going to piss people off and they're going to have to do it with an iron fist. Mm hmm. Yeah, I want I actually want to temper what I was saying totally before because they might it's a question of would like imagine this eco-fascist is basically fascist. I know it's supposed to be like disaster communism or whatever, but any form that I imagine this happening looks super eco-fash. So I'm just going to call it that. So if this, you know, eco-fash breakdown thing happens um and let's just say there's it, it's super effective and they really knock out all that, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, they just like cut it. And so we're ju we just have to float on like s without more greenhouse gases, but we also just disabled our ability to do the kind of geoengineering that we would need to do to, you know, maybe undo that. Like, is that going to end up being better than if capitalism just runs its course for the next 50 years? Yeah, I don't think capitalism running its course for the next 50 years is at all a desirable outcome. Yeah, so, so I actually want to, I, I, I want to temper my totally. I said totally. It was a good troll, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, no, I, no. I, I like when I, when I propose, I like, when I propose Sorry. which one is more likely, I'm assuming that both are, like, sort of not going to do it in the end, probably. Right, but Fair. which one is more likely to do it? Okay. Like okay. both are hail marys, but one one is like basically like throwing the ball backwards, and the other one is like throwing the ball forwards. Course, Still yeah. hail marys. Well, well, is completely stupid. Well, my point is is that people aren't going to like all form agricultural communes and grow their own organic food and live in this eco socialist bookchinite municipal democracy. Everyone's just going to give up all tech and everything that can possibly be bad and just all figure out ways to live off of the land and their local economies. Like, that's just not going to happen. That's no. a fantasy. It's a pure utopian fantasy. And no. anyone who's offering that as a vision of a new future, because that's what degrowth is based off of. It's based off this idea. Anyone who's offering that as a political vision to the public and struggle for survival is going to get left off. And people, instead of going with that, they're going to go with the fascist warlord with a jackboot who can offer the goods and offer protection. You know, it's not going to be this eco-socialist, decentralized, bookchinist utopia. Well, let's look at what's on offer here because the framework that he works, or the framework that the authors are working with is the abolition of town and country as being the political way of patching this up. And much like abolition of the family, uh, abolition of town and country, you know, sounds kind of crazy. It sounds like it could be a Pol Pot relocation project. You know, if, if you blow it out of proportion, if you're, if you're not like focused on what the thinkers are trying to imagine. And um, I do think that this is a good way of getting around the weird, you know, back to the land Pol Pottery. Um, but without just accepting Honestly, like 
the hyper alienation of people piled upon people piled upon people where there's so many people that that no one really matters. Like (laughs) that's, there is something about that. It's fundamentally alienating. And as you know, I like, I like living in cities and everything, but um, there is something about this. If we had more people spread out across the land with a lot of the awesome tech and falafel at four in the morning that you can get in the city, like, you know, being more available, you know, high quality public transit so that you can fucking get around and independently or relatively independently. High speed rail. Well, I mean, if we're ever buckle up, everybody, because this century is going to be a bumpy ride and it's probably however we pass through that bit is really going to determine what comes afterwards. We could have that or we could have highly concentrated urban enclaves because everything else has been too fucked up or has to be 100% devoted towards growing food. But who the fuck knows? You know uh, who knows? Gene Roddenberry. Because there is we're due for a nuclear conflict in the middle of the century. And yep. then, like, 100 years after that, we there's first contact, and we get, you know, space communism. So, yeah. go us. No, gotcha. listen. Who really knows is Justin Murphy. He's figured out this plan. <laughs> figured out this plan where we just get some super profitable online businesses and then we just, we just keep those running we just keep these profitable online businesses running and we use those profits to just buy like some acres of land and then we just use like science to make the perfect commune you know that's really the future you know that that's what we need to do yeah um get my uh Donate to Justin Murphy's Patreon so we can interview more <laughs> white supremacists. I mean, that's honestly white supremacists like us. Oh God! Hey, no, I mean, but seriously, if that's like your plan for like what we're gonna do, I feel like oh, you're you're come on, try harder than that. Think what? of something better than that. Go for uh, it. I think the, the, the Ven- Venus Project. The Venus whole project. thing. The whole thing that. Justin is working with there is this, you know, dark delusion kind of notion that, you know, ca- there's this buzzword that's used in Deleuze that something is rhizomatic. And the only way that I'm going to really reference this concept is in saying that it's his way of describing how capitalism is modular, it doesn't require centralization. There's something untamable about it. You can't quite storm the palace. You know, it, it seems to reproduce itself all around. And what we have to do is find something if we want to be socialists and we want this to be the next stage of society that outmaneuvers capitalism the way capitalism outmaneuvers everything else. I mean, these, these dark delusions believe that nothing can and that capitalism yeah. is the end of history and that capitalism is the ultimate rhizome. See, that's, you know, that's what Marx doesn't believe that. He thinks no, that. No, no. He believes well, I mean, quite the opposite. going to outmaneuver capitalism because it's going to prove to be the more effective way of doing things. But, and so at first, the intuition it might that not makes seem us... to be the more effective way of doing things because, the, you know, the world is obsessed with industrialization and speed. But then at a certain point, as ecological crisis and, and you know the negative effects of this capitalism start to creep in, then all of a sudden, perhaps Marx's alternative becomes more appealing. And the idea of scientifically and rationally controlling this monster, all of a sudden, even if it means you know some people are going to maybe have to sacrifice a little bit of their living standard, 
still becomes more preferable. And I actually do think that, you know, I'm, I'm not praising degrowth, but the idea that nobody's going to like lose any living standard due a revolution is just absurd. I think also the way we define a living standard will fundamentally change. Yeah, it won't just be, you know, like you got a flat screen, you got a, you know. Yeah, the, but the thing the is, is that people still have habits of bourgeois thought. And so even if, you know, there's this new idea of a living standard developing, people are still going to be clinging back to like what they remember as the old valued living standard of the past. And so it's going to be a slow, gradual process of slowly breaking beyond that. You know, hard pushback on some of this. I actually think bourgeois thought is really helpful for helping us analyze why, you know, we could all have pretty kick-ass lives. We can do this basket of goods thing. Neoclassical economists like to think about, you know, a, a, a sense of like an average income as a basket of goods. You know, what, what can, what's the, the decent life in this oh, yeah. society I, that I, you can I, buy? I, and if you think about the global yeah. basket of goods, and if you even calculate it in bourgeois terms, for the majority of the population, this is going to be an enormous boost. Yeah, for, just yeah, for all about... throughout the world. But you're right that the American middle class is going to take a hit, probably, but not yeah. all of them. No, no, no. Um, there's a Jehu article where he actually does what you're talking about, and he calculates, okay, what is the world basket of goods? And it figures out to basically be a pretty good middle class American living standard. Right. It's a loss for people who make above $100,000, but it's a gain for the vast majority of the entire world. And let's remember, these standards are living are not going to last for very The standards that we have now in the West are not going to last very long. They've already been declining pretty hard in the last half of the 20th century. And they're only going to get there's going to be a sharper decline as shit like famines, famines, lack of fresh water, continuous mass migration of peoples to like from the semi from the periphery, semi periphery into the core, things like that start and happen. You're, you're going to see a massive drop in the standards of living within our lifetime. Yeah. And there's going to be disasters where people are like, why is this not being fixed? The market so, is not fixing this. We need planning. Like, look at Flint, for example. Why are they not demanding that, you know, the government comes in and uses planning to fix the problem? Yeah. Right. The best commentary on this was from Amir in Cold Dark Stars. He's like, most people intuitively will accept this argument. Why not just directly fix the problem? Most people don't approach a problem and say, well, what if we set up a game and if people play the game, they might accidentally solve the problem. No, no, no. Why don't you just directly fix the problem? What's wrong with you? Why build a market to try to solve this? And that's that's why markets are kind of an epiphenomena of the existence of a ruling class right. that has a surplus that it can distribute amongst itself through competition. Right. Even if there is like a slight drop in the standards of living for people like us, we're going to be begging for anything, any literally anything close to where we're living now. Just in like a like 20 30 years it's just or maybe that's too hyperbolic estimation like give give it time and we're going to be like begging for like anything literally anything that's i mean just... honestly 
this is the most this is the most optimistic like take I've seen like on ecological degradation uh, in a long time. You know what you're basically saying is Are that, about Foster or no this conversation that we're having right now. Oh, oh yeah, fair enough. Yeah, where what what you what y'all are basically saying is that the degradation of the biosphere and the effects that's going to have on the majority of or a significant portion of the world's population is basically going to drive people to deeply question the system in a fundamental way and maybe create a more immediate appeal for planned economies. Yeah, that's, Mike, that's, Mike Davis makes this argument in his new book as part of yeah, one of, one of the big I, things too. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get planned economies whether we like it or not. We're going to get planned economies whether we like it or not. Nations like China aren't just going to sit like sit on their hands and watch their and just watch their cities be consumed by the sea. They're not going to do that. It's like America might because we've like been entirely brain rotted. Freedom isn't free, Rosa. Freedom isn't free. Yeah, but well, like actually about America, it's it's really because like America you know, it was founded by colonies and who formed these colonies. It was mostly people who were criminals and lumpen from England. Oh, and here you go with the lumpen again. The lumpen, lumpen, and, lumpen. Okay, okay. And then they end up being the, the future business leaders of America and also forming networks with gangs. So the American ruling class is really just rotten and, like, full of, like, illegal, like, gang activity. I mean, yeah, but... So we really thing, don't give a fuck. The thing... The thing with like China is, as a degenerative worker state, it still has like a slight communist impulse. Like it's like slowly moving towards capitalism. But as like this ecological crisis is gonna hit, they're gonna like go into like full levels of planning. Like they're just gonna have to. Like even nations like so the you, United I States. I mean, sorry, sorry to be pedantic, but it's actually deformed worker state. Deformed. <laughs> Yeah, because um, right. the Trotskyists. Yeah. yeah. Good night, because everybody. Deformed. <laughs> <laughs> Donald, don't be a spart. No, no, no. I'm not defending the spart. I actually have. Oh like, yeah, my yeah. Own. There's the difference between the Soviet Union, which is more direct, directly yeah, because... caused by a proletarian revolution, and then there are like the Eastern Bloc and like nations that went through like colonial, yeah. popular revolutions. Yeah, I, yeah, I understand. That's... I, I'm sorry, but, um, I screwed up the terminology, but yeah, no, there's still like somewhat of a communist impulse in China. It's represented by the Chinese youth, like the student youth, and like the people who are still striking. And it's just like the party bureaucracy is going to start responding to that, and they're going to start. They're going to need to start planning. And the United States will probably adopt some kind of planning more economic planning similar to like a green new deal-ish sort of deal but i i don't i don't I china don't will probably be quicker to respond and probably will degenerate less because they're they're more totalitarian just my, my critique rosa of your thesis is not that it's necessarily wrong in the long term in the grand historic sweep but i think that there's going to be a lot more social struggle necessary to force the capitalist class to eventually take the form of planning because initially ecological disasters are going to be treated as opportunities for new investments because let's say a city gets destroyed by a disaster for capital you know that's actually a good thing because 
you can make a lot of money rebuilding that city. It's the same thing with Syria. Like we destroyed that entire country, but now it has to be rebuilt. And so for capital of all different national origins, it has a, there's a lot of the benefit from partaking in the rebuilding of that country. Whether it's I mean, it, it depends. It depends, though, because if there's if there's like immediate things to exploit and take, yeah, they'll be incentive to rebuild infrastructure. But look at Haiti, or look how long it took to get the lights back on in Puerto Rico. You know, exactly. Some, but there's, think there's, about some it, places like, just, they'll just throw under the bus. But think about it, like if people just if we had a planned economy, things like Haiti and these disasters in Haiti and Puerto Rico, we would just fix them. It's because of market relations. That these disasters are lingering, continuing things. Oh, you don't have to sell me on that. What I'm saying yeah. is, like, it, it'll be like a combination of that in the near term, at least, like racism, where it's just like, well, those people were lazy before the storm, so we'd be wasting money, like, investing in that. Pl- you know what I mean? Like, mm. that's what that's what that's what it's gonna be. And you're gonna well, see the like reason, and like, the reason why I'm unapologetically for open borders, not just for ethical reasons, is because it's the best thing for the class struggle. Because yeah. the more you have different ethnic groups thrown around the world the more you have the possibility for inter-ethnic class struggle which is what allows for inter-ethnic and international unity which allows for overcoming of national chauvinism and that's gonna be say, that's gonna be a big thing is like throwing up the borders and like pitting different ethnicities against each other yeah well, the thing is there's two sides of it there's there's a backlash of pitting ethnicities against each other which is bad but then there's you know, the struggle of the proletariat forming as a class, which unites ethnicities in the battle against this, you know, kind of chauvinistic counter-revolutionary attitude. And you can see this in, like, the history of proletarian neighborhoods, even in the United States. Donald, I, f- I find it very strange that you would advocate such a Koch brothers proposal as open borders. There is nothing more anti-socialist than open borders. No, that, that's what's sad, though, is because the Social Democrats and the Stalinists, who all believe in socialism mm-hmm. in one country, they want closed borders because it means the best possible wages for their workers. They're not like, rhizomatic enough. They're tight buttholes. They're not rhizomatic. Yeah. Well, that's they the thing with East Germany. Is like, like, like a lot of fascists I've been hearing like have actually been praising East Germany because apparently they had tighter immigration controls because the workers in East Germany of all the Eastern Bloc states had the best wages and the best living standards. And so their government kept tight immigration controls despite like work visas in order to like keep up that living standard. And so it kind of creates like this chauvinistic attitude that's now being reflected in recent, um, you know, far right demonstrations in former East Germany. that's it for this week I think I think we got a little bit off topic over the course of the episode which isn't unusual but I think we started to get away as time went by from the original arguments that Foster and Paul Burkett advanced in the piece and we kind of pivoted towards talking more about the actual state of the ecosystem and the implications for the future of capitalism and, well, human civilization. I think we can be forgiven for this because it's certainly something that is, I think, probably one of the more alarming and more pressing aspects, even for communists who are 
by nature mostly focused and committed on class struggle as the focal point of capitalist crises and contradiction and ultimately transcending the system itself. But the more time passes, the more I'm increasingly disturbed by the ecological implications of the system continuing to run more or less as it has. Thanks again to Dan for donating and making us read this. It was a good read. I think we all enjoyed it and mostly agreed with its arguments. I'm not super familiar with... I'm not really familiar at all with the debates between Marxists regarding the ecological dimension of capitalist crisis and Marx and Engels' collective body of work, but their arguments made sense to me, and I think their vision of how Marx and Engels understood capitalism's relationship to nature, and even man's relationship to nature, I think is a fair characterization. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, you can just send us some money through PayPal, swampsidechats at gmail.com, or you can support us on Patreon. If throwing in money isn't, uh, if you're not ready to go that far, if money's a little tight, you can just, uh, you know, recommend us to your friends, leave us a good review on iTunes, like our posts on Facebook, share our posts on Facebook, or Twitter, I think we have a Twitter too. I'm not super active on that, but someone's doing it. If you join our Patreon, though, you can also get in on our Discord, and that's pretty lit. That's going a lot better than I expected it to. Uh, so yeah, there you go. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>